You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everybody? The Smoking Word is brought to you by CasaTheRock.com. Go cop some merch if you want to support the show. We have some limited edition caps available right now. We hand-painted the boxes, so go get some. You can also follow me at HoyerRock357 on Instagram for anything smoking word, anything madball. Follow us on iTunes, and finally, we're available on Spotify. So go subscribe, spread the word, support the movement. And this week's guest, New York Hardcore OG and A&R extraordinaire, my boy, Howie Abrams. All right, let's set this shit off. Welcome, Welcome to the Smoking Word. Welcome, welcome to the Smoking Word. Yo, but um, welcome, Howie. Finally, got you on the Smoking Word. But finally, we're fucking back officially. It's been a while. It's been and, um, a minute. We tried to do this a couple times, right? Yeah, we tried. You know, on the on the first run, I forget how how long ago it was that I had it. I want to say a couple years, and then um, yeah, something. You know, then I basically fell off for a little bit. You know, um, technology um kicked my ass a little bit. And then, um, but now with all this Zoom shit and everything, um, it's making it easy for a gorilla to talk some shit. <laughs> and I remember I was down in Florida that one time, and I was supposed to see you and Freddie, and it was some kind of weird mix-up, and you were like already on your way back home by the time I got up with Freddie. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. It was fucking. I remember that. Yeah. How long ago was that? That was like two years ago. Yeah. Okay. So that's like you know I forgot how long the break was that I took, but um, the fuck that. We're here now, so, but finally, yeah, no, I'm glad I was able to catch up with you. I wanted to get you anyway, because um, I had got Maddie Henderson, yep. Willie, and then I was like, you know, there's a couple missing people to the Madball puzzle that I figured, you know, we could throw in, but um, first of all, what's up with you? How you been, man, during this pandemic fuckery bullshit? Yeah, <laughs> no shit. Uh, I mean, you know, just doing what we got to do. It's It's... It's been a long time, you know, it's, it's been months and, uh, you know, I'm doing it here in Manhattan, my, my wife and my daughter. And, uh, you know, like we had a, a kind of normal summer, you know, um, my daughter didn't go to camp. Normally she'd go to camp, you know, um, but we went to the beach a lot. The beach has been pretty safe because you can be apart from everybody if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing that. Um, I had the, the Pete and Lou book came out. Yep. Uh, Go. We're going to get into that. Her, Yeah, that's that's some cool shit, man. Definitely, man. Duh. Yeah, it's been good. And like the reaction's been great. And it's funny because when I first approached those guys about the book, they're like, they're like, why would anybody want to read a book about us? You know, <laughs> you know, like they're both those humble dudes. And uh, and the reaction's been great because it really has this like, you know, just us sitting around shooting the shit kind of vibe about it, the book. And, you know, they cover a lot of sick of it all stuff, obviously, but definitely about their lives being two two guys from queens you know yeah no it, it was a definitely a cool idea i'm actually waiting for the audio book because um you know I, I know i said that's the that's that's more my lane than sitting down and reading but um i'm definitely want to catch up with the audio book and they're definitely um staples you know in, in in our scene what's that they're definitely staples in our scene you know that it's it's good to hear their story got you know being brothers it's like Oasis without the millions of records sold, you know? Yeah, without fighting all the time. 
Yeah, that too. And without the fucking weird hairstyle. Yeah, well, they had weird hairstyles. They're just gone now. <laughs> yeah. Had the rat tail and, and Pete, Pete had the big... The Pete Hawk. For a while. Yeah, and um, yeah, and so how, what, how did that come about as far as you started working with an editor, with a, with a book company? How, how's, how's that? How that started? Yeah, I mean, like uh, when, when the music business shit really started to crumble, um, I had to figure out, you know, what the fuck to do. You know, that's really yeah. what I've done. And, uh, you know, I've always written for like fanzines and done stuff like that. I did a fanzine back in the day and, um, you know, it, it's something I always liked, but I never thought I was going to make a career out of it. And that's what I was going to do. But, you know, the Pete and Lou book is my seventh book, you know, in seven years. Seven. And, All right. Could you name the first six then? Yeah. Yeah. So the first one was the, uh, the merciless book of metalists. All right. I got that. Did the uh, 20th anniversary warp tour book. Okay. Then I did HR's book. Okay. And then I did uh, Hip Hop Alphabet. Dope. Then did Hip Hop Alphabet 2. <laughs> okay. And then did the ABCs of Metallica. Okay. And then? And then now this. Yeah, and damn. So, so those are the seven. And, you know, after I helped get Roger's book published, even though I wasn't, you know, the writer, um, it was something that I brought into the publisher as a, a, an idea I thought would be good. And it did really well. And seeing the way that people received it was, was cool. And I thought that Pete and Lou would be a great follow-up to that because people really care about them a lot and they love the band. And I thought that the brother angle was unique and interesting that every single thing they've done from getting into music in the first place to playing it in a band for 35 plus years, whatever, um, has been together as brothers, you know? Yeah, and definitely. Cool shit. Yeah. You and Freddie have that kind of rapport anyway, even though you're not blood brothers. But like, I'm assuming that if you ever had a problem with the band, you go, well, if I do this, it's going to fuck Freddie up. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. A billion percent. And they have that all the time. Like they're actual blood brothers. But the thing about them is that, and it's amazing to me that they just don't, fight like they really are they argue like anybody would like brothers would like band members would but they really get along pretty well and they're very different you know lou is the like the sky is falling guy and pete's the roll with the punches guy yeah yeah no definitely and and definitely if they did fight i think um lou would get the best of pete well only <laughs> i think uh you know pete pete probably has the rage angle yeah, hey, no, no, definitely not. Pete's the killer. Pete's the the, the, the good guy killer. Pete, you can uh, hit the, like a, a sack of bricks and he'll get up. Let me tell you, we've had the craziest in, uh, stories with Pete on tour with them. We had like the cra one, just a real quick one. One time we, we were parked in Manchester. We had we were doing some shows together, us and sick of it all. And the bus was parked, and we hear a boom. The bus gets hit. A car hits the bus, and we all run out. And the car basically hit, you know, hit the bus and took off. Pete came out the bus, didn't know what was going on. We was like, what the fuck? We said some car just hit the bus and went that way. He just started running. And <laughs> guess what? Like 10 blocks down, he caught up to the car. <laughs> oh. Insane. Only Pete could do that shit. You know, the, you know. It's a story in the book about when you guys did the New York United uh, tour oh, and yeah. in Spain. And uh, he, you know, you guys all went out. And uh, and, and like was on the phone with Lisa or something, and just sort of then disappeared. 
And so you guys were like, well, let's go try to find Freddie. And so Pete was the one who found Freddie, and he was basically in the middle of getting arrested. <laughs> yeah, he was face down with cops surrounding him. And because he spoke Spanish, the cops didn't believe that he was an American touring musician. Yeah. Because they were like, well, then why do you speak Spanish if you're in an American band? It was insane. That was the other one. Pete literally got out the car, I mean, got out the bus and was like, just started running. He said, right. you know, we were out partying, drinking, May, all of us. And then he just took off and started running. And thank God for him. Something about him. He, he was like our good luck charm. Shout like, out to Pete. Or Freddie would probably be right now like um, Poppy Long locked in fucking <laughs> French New Guinea or some shit. Right? It's, uh, but it's so funny because you could see the visual. Of, he explains, like, I get to a corner and I see the cops and there's all this shit. He goes, not for a second did I think that Freddie's underneath the cops, you know? <laughs> and then I walk a little further. I cross the street and it's Freddie. Oh, and yeah. It's like Pete. You know, and, and I'm like, Freddie. And then we have to explain to these cops that we're in two bands touring together from America. And they're like, but how come he speaks Spanish? And they're like, well, he's, you know. Yeah. Oh, that, and it, that almost made it worse. Yeah, no, it was. That was a, the other the other fucking story with Pete. That was like some crazy shit happened. But um, thank God we had a guy who, who could run. Yeah, because right. if it wasn't for his running, uh, for his gas tank, we fucking be missing a singer. Who knows what else? I know. He said he ran the whole thing. Yeah, amazing. But <laughs> now let me ask you this. When you, when you bring up a book idea to these people, is there any similarities to, uh, you know, if people don't know, you know, you were an A&R for many years. Is it the same kind of hustle you do, like for shopping a book to like trying to sign a band? I think it's almost exactly the same because, you know, like, the publisher is sort of like the record company, right? And, you know, the editor is kind of the A&R guy. And luckily, I've been working with the same editor for the whole seven years. Uh, not the whole seven years, but for like five of the seven years. So five of those books were with the same person. And so he's a music guy. He gets it. You know, like you mm. don't have to explain shit to him. So that's the beauty. It's like when I worked with you guys, you don't have to tell me what hardcore is. You don't have yeah, to tell exactly. me what hardcore is. You don't have to tell me who AF is. I got it. Um, so working with him is great because when I'm like, I want to do a book with HR, you know, he's like, fuck yeah, let's do HR, you know? And then Pete and Lou from sick of it all. Oh yeah. I know who those guys are, you know? And I like the brother angle. He got it. Yeah. So it's real similar. And what I've been doing is, you know, sometimes if you work at a book publisher, just like, you know, when you would get the cassettes from bands like randomly and you'd get this big box of demo tapes, you know, I, I go out to the, to the bands generally. And I'm like, what do you think about this idea of a book? You know? So I'm trying to create the thing because Pete and Lou were never thinking of doing a book for them, you know, for themselves. Yeah. Uh, HR wasn't thinking about doing a book, you know, uh, Roger, I, I don't know if like John Wiederhorn approached him, you know, or if Roger was like, I kind of want to do a book and then found the right guy who wanted to write it, but it's very similar, like finding a producer, you know, yeah. um, produce the album. But, you know, when I went to Pete and Lou, I had a very specific idea about the brother thing, like, because they were like, well, what about, you know, Craig and Armand? I'm like, I was like, look, you know, I love those guys. I know Craig before I know Pete and Lou. But the thing is, you could find information about bands on fucking Wikipedia. You could find all that shit on the Internet. Um, I could find out anything I want about Madball on the Internet. 
but I'm not going to find out about Hoya's childhood. Yeah, I'm no. About what it was like growing up and what your mom was like, and you know those types of things. I'm not going to know that. I want to know what the ingredients were that that made all this, and that that's what I thought was cool with Pete and Lou, and they got the idea, but you know then they had that like, well, I just hope like Armand and Craig are cool with it. Like we don't feel like we're doing something that's leaving them out. Of course. Um, like it's not that. It's really just about it's a story about you guys and the sick of it all story will get told because you're going to talk about your lives. Yeah, no, definitely. It's kind of like the, 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 the movie, the, the agnostic front right. um, film, you know, it's you, it, it, they get into the whole band, but the stories about, you know, Roger and Vinny's relationship and, but it also gets into the band and all that other stuff. So think about like at the end of the day, all the people that came and went from that band, you know, it's like, those are the guys like that's the heart and soul of agnostic front. So you could hear the agnostic front story in tons of, you know, uh, documentaries in a bunch of books in articles on the internet, but like hearing Roger and Vinny talk about their lives and how they met and how they did things and what their attitude was towards hardcore and music and other bands and like having a band that's what I want to learn about. Like, that's the stuff I want to know. Cause I didn't live with them. I didn't grow up with them. Um, you know, hearing Roger's story about Cuba, like even though he was a little kid, he remembered a lot of that stuff. And, and, and to think that it all started there. Right. And then he winds up in Jersey and abusive Crazy. father, abusive stepfather, like all that shit. It's like, you start to understand where it came from. And, and that's what I wanted to know. Like, you know, you could, anybody could do an AF book. I could write an AF book without talking to anybody. <laughs> yeah. All the shit online. No, so, totally. And the, the main thing, the thing that I loved about these books coming out and the, 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 the film coming out and all that stuff that, um, that we get to show the world how rich the hardcore scene is and, 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 and this music thing as, as underground as it is, as homegrown, as DIY, um, the roots of this shit are so deep and strong and rich with um, culture, music, um, stories that they hang with the bands that were around 20 years before. It's just, it's a, it's a newer animal. And I'm glad that, that you know, doing a book shows that it's not just going to be a, a zine. You know what I mean? That we could do the next step up and people like you are taken to the next level for, the scene in general, you know what I mean? The hardcore scene around the world, not just New York hardcore, you know? That's the thing. It's like, you know, early on, it was about the music, like everybody representing with their music. Here's our style, right? Here's what we do. Here's where we're coming from. This is our lyrical approach. This is what's important to us. And now it's like, it's kind of all been done. There's still great bands and there's still people, but like hearing about another guy or another band who lived the street life and had a broken home or whatever it's like i don't want to say it's boring because everybody's got an interesting story but it's not the same as when you're hearing it for the first time you know and so when you're hearing about someone's life like that that you didn't know about before that's cool but when it's the 10th time yeah you do something else so I found like what was cool, especially with Pete and Lou, is they don't come from that life. They come from a very middle class, great family, great parents, both still alive, both still in the picture. The brothers, he's got, they got two other brothers that, that played a part in it. And 
I feel like so many people can relate to that because that's what a lot of people's lives look like is that they had decent parents and they provided, whether they were middle-class, poor, rich, whatever, um, they had a real normal quote unquote life. Right. And they just decided like that the average shit that was around them, you know, freestyle music, Guido's, all that Queens. shit. That wasn't for them. I, I don't love freestyle though. That, that was for me. See the playlist in their book. No, I didn't. I didn't get to see the book yet. I'm, I'm waiting for the audio because I'm not much of a reader, but I want to, I want to get into it. So in the book, they, they talk a lot in their childhood about Guido's and how like everything they did was like to counter what the Guido's were about. So they made a list of um, freestyle records that were big at the time so that people would understand what Guido's were, were into. Yeah. You know, Lizette Melendez and like Lisa you know, Lisa has to be on there. You know? And, uh, and so that list to me is so funny because they're just kind of, you know, trying to be like, no, this is what was playing out of every car you know, in our neighborhood. And that's why we got into hardcore. That's a fact. And, um, you know, my brother, I know about hardcore because of my big brother. And my big brother grew up hanging out in the alleyway with Pete, Lou, Armand, with all those guys. So I know them from when I was a little kid. Das used to live a couple of blocks away from me. And that was my brother's best friend back then in high school. And um, I met um, Lou and Richie because Richie was from Corona. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, you know, Queens had hardcore everywhere you know that's that was the, the beauty of queens uh, queens had hardcore everywhere is right and like some of the best bands i mean especially early on i mean even from like you know kraut you know like being much more punk rock but you know kraut and then murphy's law and leeway and gilligan's revenge and token entry and sick of all mad ball with the queen's roots and like you know it it's so deep it's crazy you know and why do you hold on why do you think queens what is it about Queens that had that, you think? It's because it was such a melting pot for even the city? Well, it's, it's even more of a melting pot now, but it was always a melting pot. But I think that Queens is sort of like the most average upbringing, you know, that you can have. And like <laughs> being average upbringing is like, it's pretty fucking boring. Like yeah, I know exactly. for me, it was either like, do something that will be productive or just get in trouble. Yeah. That, those were the lanes, right? It was like either getting shitloads of trouble or like for me, it was from a really young age getting on the, the, the Q43 bus and then going to 179th street and taking the E or the F into the city. And like after school, going to Washington square, buying a bag of dirt weed and then going record shopping. <laughs> yep. You know, like go to Bleaker Bob's. So that was for me, that was kind of the outlet. I got out of just the boring part, you know, because there was nothing around like, you know, Hillside Avenue, Springfield Boulevard. It was like the McDonald's, you know, and like, uh, you know, a couple other things like that. There was nothing to do. Uh, So for me, it was like, oh, I'm hearing about this stuff going on in Manhattan and these bands like, but you can't buy them anywhere near here so i gotta get my ass into the city like take like a an hour and a half ride between the bus and the, the subway and uh get off at west fourth and yep. go to bleaker bobs you know and 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 walk around was right there and you barely had a step in the park between before some rasta dude threw a bag in your hand you know yeah. oh yeah my nickel bags yep and, and that's uh, that was the thing um 
like like you came up like a lot of the older era came up like you had the guys like stigma and, and roger that came up from like a real punk rock you know um you know i, I don't want to say new wave but kind of that era and then there was guys that came up i think more like you with the metal the you know the, the extreme metal and liking um that's how my brother came up was more on the extreme metal heavy and then getting into hardcore then coming from punk rock or new wave or rock and roll kind of thing well because so, it was about the music being more intense and more extreme right so even the punk rockers so you had that that direction right so the what you know Vinny was going to fucking Max's Kansas City and doing all that shit and seeing like you know New York Dolls and the Dead Boys and like those kinds of bands which was a fucking great period you know yeah and so he saw that and then you had you know the Iron Maiden Judas Priest people who then you know started to get into like the Metallica demo and then the first Metallica album then from 83 on every even before that Motorhead and Venom right and nice. like, it was faster and it was reckless, you know, and then at some point, like discharge is just a less satanic version of venom. You know what I mean? It's like it all, it the all kind of together. And then it's like, I, now I like discharge and I like GBH and I like the exploited, but I like Metallica and I like Slayer and I like, you know, Exodus, whatever, you know, and that all became just one thing. And I felt like for the metal kids, it was about like, we always talk about this. It's, it was about speed. You know, that it was about what, what's the fastest band, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, there was no metal band faster than DRI, and there was no metal band faster than this band or that band. And it was almost like a joke, like, who has the demo with the fastest song? <laughs> on, you know, and, you know, you thought, like, except Fast as a Shark was fucking fast, you know? I love that track, by the way. That was one of my favorite tracks. How hard is that song? Oh, my God, the double bass of that song? Amazing. They used to play that at Lemoore, I think, probably three times a night. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and it would come on, and you'd be like, oh, my God. you know. And then, but then you would hear hardcore, and then you'd be like, yeah, this is nothing. <laughs> you know what? I wish everybody could see that mame, that beautiful mame you used to have. The, the, yeah, the, a picture up. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, this is the thing. So I know you came up with, like, coming in front with Nuclear Assault, being from that, you know, coming up with them and kind of helping them out, kind of threw you into the mix. But what was it you became? You're a hardcore guy. I don't care where you come from, what you listened to before, because you became not you became that you are a hardcore guy, not just because you signed, but how involved with hardcore and the love that you had for it obviously came out from signing the bands you did and the approach you took. What was it about? I know you love metal. We all love metal. And obviously that was our first loves and stuff. What was it about the hardcore? scene that made you say like yeah yeah of course i love metal and this and that but yo this is my shit i think there were two things about it one was definitely the lyrics because there was something else to offer more than like just the satan and the fantasy stuff you know yeah. which was cool you know like i don't want to hear dio sing about real life you know yeah. <laughs> i want to hear him sing about rainbows and dragons you know so that was cool but i, I appreciated uh that there were these bands, especially in New York, talking about stuff that I could really relate to. Um, so the New York stuff for me was, was pivotal because the English stuff that I liked before, so like we said, Discharge, Exploited, bands like that, it was very political, right? And when you're 14, 15, you don't care about politics. You don't give a shit. Yeah. So 
you know, you want to say fuck the police or you want to say, you know, fuck the government, like simple terms. That's cool. But like once it started getting deeper, I'm like, this is too much thinking. Like, I don't want to go this deep. Like, I just want to be like, fuck this and fuck that. Like, I'm a kid. So that was one. But then also the, the, the tangible nature of it. So like you had these big metal bands that would come to New York, let's say, if they weren't from here uh, once a year or something like that. And a lot of them were kind of playing these places that either I was too young to get into or they were like these big arenas, which I never really loved that much, except when I was really young um, and didn't know there was a difference and you could go to a club or something like that. So the fact that every Sunday you could go to a place like CBGB's and see five bands or four bands for five bucks, you know, every week. And then you'd have like the once in a month bigger show at the Ritz or the Rock Hotel or wherever. Um, the fact that you could go see these bands all the time the way you could get involved in that is so different than metal. Like metal, it was like, there was no internet, you know, there was no whatever. You had to like somehow through an ad in a magazine or something, somebody's older brother had to tell you that Iron Maiden was coming to town and playing Nassau Coliseum or their garden, you know? Yep. And then with hardcore, when you left Seabees, you got the ad for the rest of the week and you <laughs> saw who was playing next week. It, or the Village Voice, which you never, you never bought, you know, you just looked at the back page and, and left and left it there, you know, and who's playing CBs? Oh, look, you know, GBH is playing the Ritz and AF's opening, you yeah. know, shit like that would happen. So the, the way you could get involved in it was so different. Like you felt a part of it as opposed to like feeling like a spectator. And <laughs> that was so cool. I mean, you know, 1985, like two years into the scene, I'm like doing a fanzine and I'm interviewing bands and I'm becoming friendly with bands and like getting to know them. And then, you know, it was only like three years later that I, we started in effect. And because I knew these people, you know, they trusted me a little bit. They're like, oh, that guy hangs out. Like I see him around, you know, I've talked to him. Um, so like I know Roger and Vinny in some shape or form since 1984, you know, and then Later on, I'm their record label, you know, and, you know, between me and Steve Martin, they're like, well, of course, we know those guys, you know, and Steve was in the band at the time. Yeah. So that, that's what I was going to ask you anyway. I was going to start asking you. So how did you get into the whole A&R stuff? Like, I mean, obviously right now, music is so different. I don't even know how A&Rs work nowadays. But at it. that time, how, uh, you know, what was it um, like on some friend on some friendship with the, the people that ran a label and said, Hey, you know, how does that work? And how did it work in those days? Like your first official A&R job was with who? Well, it was, uh, it was basically in effect, you know? So I was a, a salesman for what was important record distributors at the time. Um, and then it became red. And then after red, uh, the orchard bought it. So now it's all part of the orchard, but it was called Important Record Distributors. It was the biggest independent record distributor. And it was just in Hollis. And I lived in Queens Village. So I'm 10 minutes away. So Danny Loker actually worked in the warehouse for a while. But Nuclear Assault was pretty newly signed to Combat. So they signed to Combat in 86. And so I would go to the office with them sometimes. And like, you know, Danny didn't have a car. So sometimes I'd give him a lift over to a meeting with combat. And, you know, you'd always get like free promos and shit when you go over there. So it was always worth the, worth the trip. So 
And uh, how many friends do we have that fucking worked in that warehouse? Everybody. You name them. Forget it. The, the superstar bands that could be formed out of that fucking out of that house. More than one. And uh, <laughs> like, I didn't know what A&R was. I'd never even heard the term, you know, but I knew independent record labels, you know? So I knew discord. I knew revelation. I knew epitaph, like all that stuff is up and running. Right. But it's funny is like, I was also like a big Def Jam fan. Like I followed the label. You know, like I wanted to know what was next on Def Jam. And I thought the way that they did things um, like and also Russell being from Hollis, you know, so like he was like a neighbor almost, you know what I mean? And so I was fascinated by Def Jam. And so really, think about it. In effect, was like my Def Jam fantasy, right? Like (laughs) Def Jam jacket. So. You know, we started. Hell yeah. And back then it was about the label. You know what I mean? Nowadays, you know, yeah, you want a good label and I'm sure you got your big labels that matter. But back then it was like if Def Jam dropped something, you knew there was a certain a certain standard of the bands of the quality of the packaging. Like, again, if you had a Def Jam jacket back then, the one jacket, forget it. You were the man if you could even get it. You know what I mean? when they made Slayer Def Jam jackets. You remember that? Oh, hell yeah, I remember that. That, that was the hardest shit, Slayer on Def Jam. I was like... And, and, and putting out Rain and Blood on Def Jam. Oh, that's ins- what Rain and Blood was on Def Jam, huh? The only one on Def Jam. Holy shit, I didn't even put that together. That made it even harder. Slayer's I mean, harder than I even expected. Rick Rubin going to see Slayer, you know, at Lamore and shit, you know? And, but, but, you know, ultimately... It was about labels at that time. And like the label was important. So again, I didn't think about uh, A&R. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how a record label worked. I just knew they existed, you know? And I definitely learned some shit by being a salesman, you know, because I was in the next room from the record labels because Combat and Relativity were in there. And I saw what they were doing. But we also saw, especially from being a salesperson, that a lot of bands were kind of getting neglected um, that were on Combat. So, you know, Death did fine. Dark Angel did fine. Like those bands got love because the people working with them who are cool people uh, who I like, you know, but that was their thing. That was their wheelhouse. So they knew exactly what to do. And there was that formula. Like we do some ads and we do advanced cassettes and the band goes on tour and like we sell what we sell and then we forget about them in four months. Like that's it. That's how marketing went at a, a metal label, you know? Uh, if the if the record kept selling, then they cared, you know. Yeah. But then they had bands like AF, and they had Ludacrist, and they had the Crumb Suckers, and things like that. And I think they thought that if they just sort of put it out there and threw a couple of free ads and fanzines, that that was enough, you know. And I was like, no, these bands, how are they going to grow? Like, how are they ever going to get bigger? How are they going to reach more people? So the whole idea within effect was to rescue Agnostic Front, you know, get them off combat. And, and try to have them work with some people that, that cared a lot about what they did versus like the death metal bands that were on combat. Yep. Being a salesman, I got the ear of uh, the head of sales, Alan Becker, who I'm sure you remember. Um, he was there forever. He's still there. He's like the one guy who's still there. And, mm-hmm. you know, we started talking about this idea for a label that would focus a little bit more on hardcore. And so, we're like, let's, let's start it. Cause they were, they started talking in 87, I think it was about doing a live agnostic front album after the uh, Liberty and justice album. They started talking about doing a live at CBGB's album. 
So we said, why don't I take that over and, and we'll make that the first album on in effect. And I don't even know if we had a name yet, you know? Um, and so we're like, but let's not just put out one album the first day. Cause if we do that, people are going to think it's not serious, you know, that it's just one album and maybe, maybe we'll never put out another album. So because the distributor worked with like all these other labels, we reached out to roar and said, can we put out the bad brains cassette uh, on CD for the first time? Oh. And, you know, that was 87 is kind of when like underground music started to come out on CD. It was still new, you know, like, I wonder if this will sell on CD. You know? And oh, yeah. so we did that. And then we found out through a label in England we were, we were working with that Prong was doing a second album. And so it came out in England, but it wasn't out in America. And they were from New York. So we're like, let's put out the second Prong album, the AF Live album, and the Bad Brains Roar cassette the same day. That's the first day of In Effect, right? Jesus. So it came out. It went great. You know, we got a lot of, a lot of um, love and a lot of interest and it was cool. And then it was time to like start signing bands, you know, cause we're like, we don't have our own bands really. Like AF was here already. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever do another prong album. They wound up signing to Epic and did their third album with them and bad brains w were kind of broken up at the time, you know? So um, it was kind of around the time of quickness, but like a little bit before. And, uh, and then, you know, we're like, look, there's a lot of great bands like within our reach and, and ultimately, you know, we should, you know, we should try to get them on this label. So sick of it all was one of them. We signed raw deal. And then we, we wound up having problems, you know, with, with the name. Um, Cause it was, I remember that, that first of all, that was one of the best hardcore shows I ever went to was their last show where they ripped up the banner. Yeah. Because of the whole, you know, I still call them raw deal. I don't give a fuck. That's to me. They, they will always be raw deal. That's right. my favorite hardcore band ever, by the way. Yep. And so, so, you know, uh, and, and then we signed 24 seven spies and, you know, and, and scatterbrain was ludicrous. So yeah. when we started making their album, we were making it as ludicrous, but as they were doing it, we realized it was kind of something else. They were doing something different. And so we're like, you know what? Ludacris really didn't get the love that they ever deserved. Why don't you just be a new band, you know? And so we came up with this whole thing and we had a fan like name the band and we gave away a guitar, oh, you know? Shit. I never knew that. That's dope. And, and uh, how many bands in total you signed? Do you know off the top of your head? You mean like ever? Ever. Oh, Jesus. I mean, it's got to be like 30. Really? Jesus yeah. Christ things that people don't even know about that like I worked with that like either I got like the assist for it you know like so I brought the demo in even for another label sometimes got so, you know that band Stabbing Westward yes so I brought that demo to Columbia oh get out of here that's crazy that, right you know that band Three Days Grace yeah of course the person to go see them in, in Canada and brought brought it over to Jive Get out of here. I, ne I never knew that shit. That's cool shit, man. Well, because I was not their A&R person. I, I wasn't the A&R person for either. Um, but like, you know, Columbia paid me, you know, for that demo. And then because I wanted to sign it to Roadrunner. And then Columbia wanted it. And we're like, we're never going to get this done. So I tried to like, see if maybe Roadrunner could do the first album. And then maybe Columbia takes it over. And, and it we couldn't get it done. So basically, uh, David Kahn, over at uh, uh, over at Columbia, who 
who signed uh, Fishbone, and he was responsible for like Cypress Hill over there, all that shit. I gave it to him, and so he uh, he signed Stabbing Westward, and so there's that kind of stuff. And then there's bands that I signed that fucking just didn't do well, you know, that people never really heard, you know, um, or they only did well overseas or wherever, you know, um, you know, Limbo Maniacs, like they were big in three states. That's it. <laughs> They were big in like San Francisco, Philly, and uh, DC because they were like a go-go thing, you know. Oh, I never even heard of them. People didn't understand it everywhere. <laughs> and and all right, now let me ask you this: How did so? What happened? How how did it work that you went from in effect that that kind of finished, and then how did you end up at Roadrunner? So what happened there? Let's not forget that uh, in effect was the first place that Madball came to the surface, right? Yes, so, yes. Yeah. I, I was going to get into that with the Roadrunner thing, but you're right. We could set it off with the way it happened was uh you know sony bought the whole like important relativity thing like they they bought the whole company and you know the way those big labels work is they try to be all lean and mean with it right like a and r means nothing and so whoever's bringing the bands in doesn't matter you know we just got to keep the machine happening and all that so they came in they dropped most of the bands they got rid of most of the staff myself included and that was that, you know, so they kept uh, a few bands. They kept uh, some of the other stuff just as catalog or whatever, you know, and, uh, and that was that. So I took a little bit of time off. Like I was just kind of fucking around. Like, you know, I was still like early 20s, you know, sort of was in shock that even the past four years we accomplished all the shit, you know, and uh, I was just kind of like waiting around, like trying to figure out what to do. And because, again, I, I didn't look at it like, oh, I'm in the music business, you know, like I need another A&R job. Like, yeah. again, I didn't even know I was an A&R person, really. I didn't <laughs> understand that. So I got a call kind of out of the blue from Monty uh, Connor. Shout out to Monty Connor out there. He just wants to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, in case was the owner of Roadrunner based in the Netherlands, you know, I knew of Roadrunner because important distributed Roadrunner. So, of course, I knew Sepultura, I knew Obituary, all that stuff. So <clears throat> I talked to Case, and he's like, I would love for you to come over here and do what you did with an effect and do it over here. And I was like, do you want me to, like, start another label? And he was like, yeah, I think so. And I'm like, yeah, but one thing that I got out of the experience over there is – it, it should probably be just Roadrunner. It should probably just be the same label because you already do all this aggressive music, right? So we're going to do the same thing. It's just going to be maybe a slightly different genre, whatever you want to you know, refer to it as. So let's just make it Roadrunner. It'll just make Roadrunner stronger. And the thing was too, that Roadrunner had this amazing international setup, right? So they had offices in Europe and Holland, Germany. They had offices in Japan just because of Sepultura. They had people in Brazil, you know? So it was like, what a great setup. And I didn't realize how great it would be until we started putting out certain albums that caught on overseas before they caught on in America. And they were all American bands, every one of them. So I had this thing where like at first, a lot of people over in Europe were getting more excited about the stuff I brought than even in America. So you know, I mean, the doggy dog thing is an unbelievable example, right? So, you know, they're from Jersey. And, you know, we did okay with the first album in like hardcore terms. But in Europe, they did okay in like pop fucking MTV terms, you they know? Were killing it back then. Crazy. But you guys benefited from that shit too, because 
you know, like overseas, aggressive music is taken way more seriously. It's not treated as like the Rosa Parks of fucking music. You know what I mean? Like back of the bus shit. Like it's, it's just as important as anything else. And they give all kinds of bands a chance. So, you know, that's why Madball has gotten the opportunity to play with these giant bands overseas. You know, you did Olympus couture, not even long ago, you know, Um, but I'm talking about like the Iron Maidens and the Slayers and those types of bands. But, you know, like even sick of all we were talking about, they're like, we've played with fucking Oasis because of the festival situation. And it just gets handled with so much more respect over there. Like the press gives a shit about it. The labels give a shit about it. Um, you thought when Sick of It All went to a major label, it would fall off. It's like, no, it actually got better over there. Yeah. And the, you guys did what, so fucking well over there. What I wanted to ask you this, you're going you're gonna to help me fucking figure this, this, this thing out that I probably would, I, I would probably toss and turn in my grave <laughs> unless you, I asked you this question because the band has a couple different versions of this. We're talking about how we got signed to Roadrunner. Yeah. Now, you know, I remember, I don't remember a specific place. I just remember um, 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 uh, Roger or somebody mentioning um, Rat Cage Records wanted to put out something with, with Madball. Because, again, they asked me to jump in the band. It was just to fill in and do a couple of shows. And then they mentioned something about, oh, maybe doing something with Rat Cage. And then in my head, you came came out and we ran into you somewhere and you said and we and we talked to you and and you said oh you guys are doing madball i'm at roadrunner get at me but i don't remember if it worked that way do you what's what really happened because i I don't know how it how it fell into place i mean that's kind of how it happened like obviously we have so many fucking mutual friends i could have talked to any of 10 people and said oh madball is gonna like kind of like they want to tour and like do things like we should be talking about this, you know? And, you know, I had the, the drop of many suckers record and I put out fucking, you know, uh, the first one. So it's like, you know, I always loved Madball Cause I knew that, you know, basically you guys, if you wanted to be serious and you wanted to be a quote unquote real band, you guys would do great, you know, because you had that history of the Madball name behind from 89. And then uh, I think dropping many suckers was 92. Yeah. Something and, like that. You know, so what, by the time you put out your first record on Roadrunner, it was 94. So at some point in 93, like the, the, like black train Jack was signed. Um, Doggy dog put out the EP. So, you know, I was, I mean, I always went out a lot, but like I was going out a lot. I was seeing every show, but like when Madball would play, I'd always go, And so I don't remember if like I had run into Roger or if it was, you know, even Scott Gibbons, like, I don't know who it was, you know what I mean? Scott, And, and just said, you know, cause someone had have told me at some point that Madball wanted to like, again, be like a real band, like that you would make records and tour and you were in the band by now. And so, you know, I'd seen shows with you in the band um, and I thought you guys were just great. You know, like I, I was sort of like the, the pure rawness of what you guys were doing, like that you guys were really going for that OG New York style at the time. Like that was that, that raw, like, you know, United blood fucking, yeah. 
you know, urban waste kind of shit. Exactly. Know? It was definitely that um, um, squat hardcore, like <laughs> Roger AF style. Yeah, it wasn't even victim in pain. It was, it was like, you know, because that's what, um, that's what uh, you know, uh, the ball of destruction, seven inch reminded me of it, reminded me always of United Blood. And I was like, man, it's like United Blood with this crazy little kid singing. <laughs> yeah. I actually bought the seven inch. I would see Freddie jump on stage like at the live at CB's. Time, and right. you remember that was like the hardest shit. You're like, yo, the little kid comes out and sings and it's the hardest shit. And I remember going to Bleaker Bob's and I would look for any record just to buy to, you know. And I remember seeing the, the, the in effect, the, the, the first seven inch, the ball of destruction. And I go, oh, shit, they put the shit out on, on, on vinyl. Yeah. You know, on the record, I ended up buying it, and I was like, um, "Oh shit!" And go figure, you know what I mean? Well, it just started with Roger walked into our offices one day in Hollis with a cassette, and 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 that was the cassette. It was the seven inch, and so he had no idea what they were going to do with it. They just sort of recorded themselves, like it was like, "Oh, like we could do this for like a hundred bucks or whatever." So we'll <laughs> go to Don Fury's or whatever, and we'll record. So they did the seven inch, and I was like dude, you should put this out. Like we should put this out as a seven inch. And he was like, okay. And like, he left the cassette with me. And I think we mastered it from the cassette. Yeah. I re you know, I, those days, especially, you know, we give a, we always shout out Roadrunner, even though we were like, we, we say we used to pay for the toilet paper in the building. You know what I mean? We didn't keep the lights on. We paid for the toilet paper, but, um, being on that label, you know, um, it put us on the map, you know, it, it, you know what? I was glad that it, and I'm glad that it wasn't a sub of Roadrunner because we were associated with the Sepulturas. We were associated with the typos and all that. It wasn't like, oh, they're on the sub label of those bands label. You know what I mean? Well, that's, that's what I didn't want to do when I got there. I'm like, you know what? It's not like I envisioned, you know, 1995 Dynamo, you know, where it was basically like the fucking Roadrunner festival. I mean, um, I remember I was probably the last person you talked to before you walked on stage. I have photos of it and I've never seen you nervous. Oh yeah. You were actually nervous. Oh I, yeah. That was like, I say, um, our worst show. Cause everything that could go wrong happened to us. But to, but to this day, that's the show people that were there said, yo, that's what made me fall in love with Madball. that it was so crazy. And you know, we definitely had energy, but as far as um, uh, being technical and being on point at the time, not so much. <laughs> as a matter of fact, if you look on the video online, there's the my 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 bass cord didn't even reach the end of the stage because we never played a stage that big. So I had to bring the microphone halfway in the middle of the stage. You know, ah, insane. Like, like your pass was in the way. Uh, everything. Cord was fucked up. Freddie fell off the stage. He had a fucking. He had the coronavirus before the coronavirus. But then, like, uh, the, the, you guys had to stop a song. <laughs> stop. Which is on a festival stage. Stop. I know. You see, this is the most embarrassing shit. We literally stopped because the song collapsed. Some kid jumped on stage, sang, jumped in on the wrong part. The band fell off. And we were, like, so green at the time. As, you know, I just instead of just keep going, we, like, stopped. I remember looking at each other, like, laughing, like, you know, what else could go wrong? You know what I mean? Mesh is like, I mean, it was like 12 noon. There was uh, probably 60, 75,000 people already out there, right? Uh, one stage. And, and so that 
starts, and I was so proud. Like, I was like, oh, I'm like a little league dad right now. Like, <laughs> I'm playing this fucking festival. And then, uh, it, you know, it didn't end this way, but Freddie, like, was like, tell that kid who was screaming. He's like, see me after the show. <laughs> yeah, see, we always talk about that. He goes, yo, I told you to, you know, to jump, you know, sing along and not fuck up the song. And he goes, yo, I'll see you after the show. And I always laugh. Like, there was a door you opened up and, like, you right, walked right. out. And it's like, <laughs> for the fucking 80,000 people, yeah, you know. Was- crazy the but, cool shit about that time again about being on that label and with the bands that were on it like i remember hanging out in the backstage area and i remember like oh shit those are the sepultura guys and i saw them looking at us right and we're like kind of like you know we wouldn't go up to each other nothing and then later on they were like yo those guys love Madball," and you know nobody knew each other back then but it was cool that's where i first started being on that label um you start seeing um the people that were in the in, in, you know metal guys or in the other scene that that showed love to hardcore and had love for hardcore like them and like later oh. on meeting guys like um you know um um creator you know creator later on you know we used to play with a, a, a club where they used to rehearse those guys were always at early madball shows those guys love hardcore you know what I mean and I think that what helped um those bands also be able to show love was because we were also, you know, you know, rubbing elbows in, in, in their world, you know what I mean? With the label and shit. That was the thing, the international thing with Roadrunner was that like, it allowed for all that shit to happen because if it was just in America, a little bit of it would have happened, but not the way it did because you know, that even that dynamo, that one festival, right? Like everybody was there. It was, they should have just called it the Roadrunner festival. Cause that's absolutely. What I mean, all the headliners were Roadrunner. Everything in between was Roadrunner. The, whole- the, the beer tent was a Roadrunner beer tent. I remember everything that day. It was ridiculous. It was, it was practically like a, a Roadrunner fucking uh, coffee shop. Oh, yeah, everything. That, that, you know, that day, oh, forget it. was like, again, the, the best, worst day of our lives. But um, <laughs> well, the you, good, the good- yeah, yeah. You know what I loved about Roadrunner, too, were the Christmas parties. You remember uh, those? Another one. Open, they used to hear open bar and we'd roll up with the boys. And, and I remember there was one specific time. I don't know if you remember, but you were involved with it. Um, it was when we just, one of the first one, one of the first ones after we got signed, um, I remember rolling up and, you know, it was like me, Freddie, I don't remember who I, you know, we all have like triple fat gooses and fucking right. looking all crazy and shit. And I remember you had told me this cause you came up to me laughing and you were like, Case had gone up to you and said, yo, who the hell are those guys? And you were like, well, you just signed them. And he was like, good. <laughs> and then I kind of felt like, yeah, you know what I mean? I got a little. Because it was like, they were like, why, why did all these fucking hip hop hoodlums just show up in this place? And you're like, well, you just signed them. Amazing. It's, it's crazy. It's so crazy. Those, those road runs. And um, how did, what, what happened, you know, what happened? At the end of the your road run a bit, how did that you know end? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I ultimately left Roadrunner, so that was like something where it was it was on me. Like I wanted to do something different, and you know, uh, I felt like we kind of went about as far as we could with the structure of Roadrunner. You know, like we 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 got the bands to about as big as they were gonna get. You know. Um, in America, it was so different because in America, you had to play like the radio game and the MTV game if you wanted to break an artist, right? So here you had like, you know, 
Doggy Dog, for instance, on MTV, winning MTV awards, um, you know, uh, on Viva in Germany, which was the, the German language version of MTV, like things like that. I mean, they were so mainstream, you know, like, like Michael Hutchins from NXS handed them their MTV award. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, I saw that on a VC on a videotape on the bus. And so, you know, in America, we wanted to try to get some of the same things done, but we just couldn't because they didn't understand that like major labels win at that game. Cause they have like that ridiculous amount of money and they have those relationships with radio stations and, and, and all that stuff to make that stuff happen. And we couldn't do it. And I felt like a little unsatisfied, you know, I'm like, it's great that fucking these bands are doing great overseas and I'm glad for them because they get to eat and like all that stuff. But what about America? You know, I want it to happen here also. Cause it's like, this is where I live. You know, I want my parents to know what the fuck I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. So I, I started looking to go somewhere else. And then uh, I found an opportunity. Um, and it was funny because at first somebody says, Oh, Zomba Music Publishing is looking for somebody, right? An A&R person. And I was like, Zomba, I've, like, I've heard of that, but I don't really know why I know what oh, that option. is. And I didn't realize that that's technically the parent company for Jive Records yeah. and like all that. So um, I was like, oh, right. Like now I get it, you know? So I went and met with them. And the owner of that company at the time, that he was, there was one owner, they were totally independent company. So all of Jive, it was totally, totally independent. And I was like fascinated by that company because it was one dude. He was from South Africa. He moved to England and he was, um, he was, uh, what's his name's manager? Um, uh, Mutt Lang. He was Mutt Lang's manager. And so Mutt Lang at the time was ACDC, Def Leppard. Um, uh, what else? Um, other some real pop you know rock stuff but you know he did back in black and he did the big Def Leppard albums and you know then he's fucking and married to Shania Twain you know and like so all that stuff and so he starts the company with Mutt Lang you know and he needs like a publishing company to collect his royalties and all that shit so he starts Zamba you know Zamba was a town in South Africa you know and so later on he has Barry Weiss, who Barry Weiss was the president of Jive. And he was like the American like hip hop guy. And he knew like uh, that there were these artists putting out these independent singles, like in every territory, Philly, New York, you know, San Francisco, LA, whatever. And so he would see who was doing like tons of business like that. And then they would sign him to Jive. And so you had Tribe and KRS-One and Jazzy yeah. Fresh Prince and E-40 and Too Short and, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, I knew them as a hip hop label. So when I went to met, meet the guy, the owner, he couldn't understand that I loved um, A Tribe Called Quest. You know, he didn't understand how the guy who was over at Roadrunner liked that yeah. stuff too. And I'm like, I grew up in New York. Like, it's, it's not about what label I worked at. I'm a New Yorker. You yeah. know, you love hip hop. You love anything. And that's rebellious and like for youth oriented, whatever, uh, like dance hall, like whatever. So he, he, he was like, so how did this doggy dog thing happen? You know, and I was like, I can't believe you really know about that. 
and he, he's over in England all the time. So he saw it, you know, happen. He saw them play on top of the pops. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and so I, I explained it to him and he goes, I still don't understand how that happened on Roadrunner. <laughs> and, and, and then you ended up, so um, with the road, you left road. How, was there, how long was the gap in between? You kind of just went well, right over to Zamba. I left to go there. So I got the, oh, okay. to go over there and then, uh, and I left, you know, and I just, they, they knew I wasn't happy. Like Doug and those guys like knew I was just like, man, cause I didn't want to be like a dick anymore. Like feeling like I'm yelling at everybody. Cause I think they're failing, you know? Yeah. And, and it was really just my frustration of like not being able to get a band in America to like really take off. And I started to realize it just wasn't really going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And then typo was the last thing that I really worked on because I was a product manager as well as an A&R guy. So I did like the marketing plan for bloody kisses and uh, for biohazard, for urban discipline and for Sepultura, for Arise. And I worked with Epic records on uh, chaos AD, um, you know, to, uh, to, to help market that record. So I did all that stuff too. And, but it was almost like, I mean, typo was kind of a big band already, but you know, it actually worked because of the kind of band that they were. Um, but every big band wanted to take typo on tour, right? So Motley Crue took them on tour. Pantera took them on tour. Nine Inch Nails took them on tour. And that's back to back to back when that album came out, right? So it's crazy. You know, it just, everything worked. You know, it, like everything fell into place. Like the shit you dream about actually happened, you know? So that was the only time I really saw that. And then later, you know, when they were involved with a major label, they had, um, uh, what's it called? It, uh, what's that shit fucking pop rock band? Nickelback. Yeah, Nickelback. Yeah, yeah. That's I remember when Roadrunner was like doing the Nickelback shit or whatever. I was like, oh, that fuck. Was later for me, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. I remember that being like crazy. We're like, oh, shit. Yeah, I know. It's shocking. What, what, what's the band that you were the most involved with that? Um, um, I just saw that you got um, Bowling for Soup. They got uh, what, a gold record, platinum record? What was that? Yeah, it's like, so it's, uh, I, I, you know, the, there's two albums that went gold already. One went platinum. But the, the singles from those albums, which really came out a long fucking time ago, one of them just went double platinum and one went gold. And, wow. So, and, the only reason it took that long is because people weren't uh, they weren't measuring singles the way they do now, where like it's part downloads and part, you know, like sales. So it's a whole weird fucking thing. I don't even understand it, to be honest with you. But I went on vacation and I had these two plaques waiting for me when I came back. But, you know, but like as a, a, a publisher, I did a lot of deals, you know, um, for the publishing company. So I worked with uh, the new Misfits, you know, when they came back. Um, I worked with uh, Suicide Machines. Wow. Uh, I worked with Brand New. I worked with Kill Switch Engage. Like all those bands I brought in for publishing deals, things like that. But then uh, I, I heard this band do one song, this band Bowling for Soup from Texas. And, you know, they sounded very pop punk to me. Like it was definitely in the, in the pocket of stuff that I liked, but, you know, not what I dealt with kind of every day. And I went to Texas to see them. And I thought they were fucking great because all they did was like tell jokes between songs. It was like Steve Martin, you know, the 
comedian like walked into their show and started talking between songs. And so I loved them. So I came back to a Jive A&R meeting, like, and I'd never, this is the same Jive A&R meeting where they're talking about Justin Timberlake, you know what I mean? And I'm like, there's this band, you know, <laughs> this cute little pop punk band in Texas. Yeah. We should check this out because I saw them and they were fucking great. And so we yeah. wanted to signing them for like nothing, like real, like dirt, you know? And we take their demos and we mix them with Tom Soares and- wow. We put them out and that's their first album on Jive. Wow. And it does nothing in America. My typical shit does nothing in America, but they start to make a little noise in the UK because they went over there a couple of times on my credit card, basically. <laughs> and, uh, toured, and toured like pubs with some ska band, you know? And so, you know, they come back, it's time to make another record. And I know they're getting dropped. Like I'm sure they're about to get dropped. So I have to go into the A&R meeting at Jive in front of Barry Weiss and Clive Calder, the owner, and tell them why not to drop Bowling for Soup. Like, that's crazy. And, like, all the A&R guys who worked at that company, except for maybe one or two, were shook. You know, like, they didn't like going into those meetings because they were so intimidated by the people who owned the place and, and worked there. And I'm like, here's, like, ten reasons why you shouldn't drop fucking Bowling for Soup from tech. And – so the, the owner takes like a long pause, right? And he's like, every bone in my body tells me we shouldn't do another album with this band, but you're so passionate about this. <laughs> I'll give you 50 grand and you can make their next album. And I'm like, that's fucking great. I've never had 50 grand to make an album before, you know? Yeah, right. So we take it and I, was, I go to the band, they're cool. And I was like, but you got to co-write. Like, you got to find someone to co-write some hits with. Like, you really got to go that route. Like, yeah. you're not credible, epitaph, you know, Hellcat band. Like, you got to shoot for the stars. Like, we got to try to be a big band here. And they were totally into it, you know. And so I hooked them up with Butch Walker. You know who that guy is? That's not the garbage guy, is it? No, no. But it's like, that. <laughs> uh, there was another guy who did those albums. But there was a guy named Butch Walker down in Atlanta who was in a band called the Marvelous Three that were like this sort of, you know, like, like pop, hard rock, you know, bubblegum rock kind of band. Really good. Great songwriter. And he started producing shit for like Avril Lavigne. And he was working with people like that who wanted to put a uh, pink, who wanted to do more like rock, you know, in their pop stuff. So Jarrett from Bowling for Soup knew who he was and was like totally into him. So we called them up and like, listen, We'll give you 50 grand. It's the whole budget. Just make the album till it's done. You know, like co-write with them, the whole thing. And they co-write this song called Girl All the Bad Guys Want, which was the gold record I just got. Wow. And it took a while because the band thought they were done, like making the album. And we're like, no, you don't have it yet. You're on Jive. Like we, we do Z100. You know what I mean? That's like what this label is. So if you want to be here and you want to be successful, I just fought for you. That's what we got to aim for, you know? So like, cool, we'll go back in the studio. And so they, they did the song, Girl, the Bad Guys Want. And it, was, it went to number one on Z100 in three days. Wow. And That's so crazy. It got nominated for a Grammy that year. And we sold a half a million albums. And, you know, like, it was unbelievable. Like, it was like, how the fuck did this happen, you know? And Z100, like, picture mad ball like you come home you're on z100 
You know? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna tell you, um, get ready in the mail. You're gonna get that set it off just went double aluminum. Oh, perfect. So, uh, <laughs> so you could put that. You could use it to wrap um fish. I'm gonna wrap uh, my potato in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrap your potato in it. I need <laughs> wrap something in it. Double, but, yeah, double aluminum. By the I, way, that's the hardcore success. That, but that's that's some really yeah, that's big, man. To not only um be a part of signing a lot of bands that ended up making a staple just in their you know in the underground, which you loved, yep. is um getting something like that, which kind of um uh, puts you in the next level of 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 music as far as the the mainstream and whatever you know earning a a gold record for whatever a platinum record that's that's huge especially for guys like us that coming from where we come from you know that's the thing like I, like i've never not been guys like us yeah like, i've always been like the hardcore kid doing this cuz i just that's my mentality you know and and i've always carried that uh, that do-it-yourself independent thing, like because that's the only way we ever knew how to do it. And exactly. so, even when working at Jive, I knew it was like me and that band up against this huge machine. They didn't get love over there until they were successful. You know, you had to like fight every day for people to give a shit. You know, so from like having to save the band from getting dropped for to that happening. You know, and then the next album was even bigger. Because that was the song that went double platinum, 1985. Wow. And, you know, they did the video where they're like making fun of Motley Crue and Limp Biscuit and all I that. remember that video. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was me and the band like collaborating on those ideas. Like, wouldn't this be funny? Because we just had to have fun with it because no one cared what we were doing. You know, only the next record after they're successful, everybody wants to be involved, you know? Of course. At that first one, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Bowling for Soup, whatever. Like, stupid name. Like, you know, everybody has to, is critical and has something to say. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's going great. And so by the time that first album came out and the song, went, you know, blew up, um, it blew up in the UK also. And so the owner of Jive had sold the company by, the, by this time to BMG. And so he moved to England again. He was living in England. And so... The, the record had taken off, like it's selling and it's a huge hit on the radio here in the UK. And I get a phone call and, and the person who answered the phone is like, oh, Clive's on the phone. And I'm like, Clive doesn't call me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you're kidding, right? It's like a joke. Like, so they're like, no, no, it's Clive. He's calling from England. And so I pick up the phone. He goes, he goes hey, I just want to let you know, like, you know, this is like as if Clive Davis was calling, you know? Yeah. He's like, I saw your boys on top of the pops and I just want to tell you just like the rosters say enough respect. <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, that's fucking we wrote a song infiltrate the system and that song we put out to people like you that's people it. that exactly people that come from our world that are doing bigger I don't want to say better things but got into bigger things and brought you know their passion their love and brings that vibe to what they're doing. Guys like you, like, that's why I started it. What, like how I started it off was saying, you know, you were a metal guy, but you're a hardcore guy. You came in through metal, but you're the definition of what a hardcore kid was and kept that mentality through the businesses that you got into, you know, taking in your A&R style, taking it, you know, to the books, taking your attitude, how you, you know, how you uh, approach a company with your brand, you know, hardcore. I used to walk up and down, CBGB's with my old band's demo tape saying five songs, 
five dollars, the hardest shit out. You right. know, you learn how to be an entrepreneur right. to, to spread your, you know, your message. And you were doing it on the next level. And I, and I know people, a lot of people lost that, that, that type of uh, passion. That's why guys noticed it with you, you know, later on, the passion you had when you, when you talked about the bands you worked with. It's the passion, but it's also the attitude. Like while people were in front of CB selling their shirts and their demos, I was the kid buying them, you know, yeah. like I, I was a fan and I'm still a fan and I still love, I, oh, I, I still get excited when I hear a new record. That's great. The band I never heard of, you know, yeah. like, cause there aren't that many of them, you know, yeah. um, when a new, a new Madball record comes around, I'm like, okay, when, when's Freddie calling me to write the bio? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, you know, the crazy shit we're good. We're working on our 10th fucking album. I can't even believe it. Our 10th. And it's 10th album in like, what, since, since uh, 94. Yes. It's not since the beginning, beginning. So it's, you've done 10 albums in a span of time that is like to do 10 in that span of time is amazing. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, we never, we were one of those guys. We never looked back till we got old. And then we started looking back and we were like, Yo, not for nothing, you know, there's classic bands that drop three albums, you know, and, um, you know, five albums, seven albums. And I'm like, we're on our 10th. And for the, we're, when you know us, we're, we're not dudes that, you know, we're, we're, we're glad, we, we love what we do and we're passionate about what we do, but we never pat ourselves on the back. I think that was kind of our problem sometimes that, you know, not on just some modest shit, it's just how we are. You know, we're, we're glad to be able to keep doing it. We're glad people still love us. But nowadays we're looking back at what we've done and we're like, yo, we didn't do too bad for a bunch of people that should have been dead or in jail. You know what I mean? But you never want to be satisfied, you know, like never go, Hey, look, we did 10 albums. It's like, no, like get to 15. You know what I mean? Facts. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What advice would you give a new band coming up right now? It doesn't even have to just be a hardcore band because you came up at different eras and you, and you, and you worked throughout the different, eras of, of vinyl cds mp3s till now what what would be the advice you give a brand new band right now with your experience i mean i think the most important thing that any band has to recognize right now is there's no fucking rules there are no rules there's no make a demo assigned to a label there's no do this there's no plan there's no path that's the only one that works that stuff's over like the internet is distribution, you know? Nice. So basically, you know, you could make anything and get it out to people fast. But the most important part of that is don't do it just because you created something <laughs> good, you know? Work it. Absolutely. Work your craft. Yeah. You know, craft it comes with time, you know, of sharpening a, your sword. You don't do in a minute. You know what I mean? It, 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 it's slow. Like barbecue, you got to do it slow and low. Yeah, you can't just like rush it. You're going to burn it, you know? And yeah, it's exactly. Like everybody, when you, when you have a band, everybody wants to jock. Everybody wants to tell you how great you are. And, and, and everything you did is like fucking gold. And it's like, sorry, it probably isn't. Yeah. It isn't. Most music is not great. Yeah. You know, so... You have to have like some kind of quality control around you. Like what we were talking about, like Def Jam, like the point was the people who were signing artists over there, they weren't going to bring shit over there. Yeah. So just because you can make music, it doesn't mean you should. 
Yeah, that exactly. The stand you got to have standards, and you can't just, you know, it, it can't just be cool for your boys because your boys always going to have your back. You got to be objective. Like you gotta, you gotta think for other people too. Like not just am I satisfied? It's like okay, if I was the fan and someone came out with this, would I would I think it's fucking banging? Like would I love it? And would I go? This is this is the new shit. Like I want to tell everybody about. You know, because that's what happens. Like music is the most word of mouth thing. And, you know, you hear something and you want to tell everybody about it because not only do you want to seem like a cool guy because you're telling everybody about all the new cool shit, but you do want to share it with people. You want people to have that same experience. So, you know, uh, if you can create that because it's great, like it all comes down to capturing a great moment and writing a great song, no matter what the genre, right? So you're always going to remember certain Madball songs because of the catchiness of it, because of the anthems, you know, and, 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 or the grooves, you know, there's something to hold on to. It's not just a style. Yeah. It's not just, you know, like we do metallic hardcore with a groove. Like that's not what it's about. It's like the whole package. It's, it's, the front man, it's the, the production, it's the, the images that come with it, it's the songs, it's everything. If you yeah. take any of that away, you're not winning, you know? And so it has to be everything. So just because you got a little gear in your house and you were able to record, you know, <laughs> yeah. and put it out to the world and like your your uncle who was in a band in Long Island, you know, back in the day, back in the day you know, like, it's like, oh, you know, when I used to play, you know, yeah, Ariel is Sundance, you know, yeah, exactly. Nobody cares. Yeah, no, definitely. Now we're at, like we already talked, it's August 24th. Wait. Now you're doing the books. Like we said, you got what, what's, what's right now out of all the books right now, but besides the newest one, which, which one your heart was, you have that special affection with, which, what, what was one that was very special for you to work on? Besides I mean, this last one. I think for me, it's, it's always going to be that HR book, you know? It's like, if I could have gone back to being a kid, you know, seeing that band in 1985, the first time, uh, after they, I thought they broke up. They kind of were broken up for a couple of years. Um, so I knew about the Bad Brains in 83, but I didn't get to see them um, until two years later when they kind of came back if I knew that that guy that I saw in that room at the rock hotel, you know, doing backflips and just controlling a fucking room, unlike anything you've ever seen in your life, you know, if I'd be working with him, I would have been shocked, you know? And that was always on my bucket list. So when the book thing started and people would be like, you know, who would you love to do a book with? Like, who's your bucket list? You know, he was top of the list because he and that band meant so fucking much to me and so much to what I care about. And, you know, every band that I love has been influenced by them, period. And, and every front man, you know, wishes they could be him, you know, and, and have that crowd control and have that, that special quality that just, you know, moves people like no other, you know, And so to have been able to work with him and tell his story, especially when he wasn't doing well, you know, and he was having issues and, 
and all that. And I feel like the book and the movie uh, about HR, Finding Joseph I, I feel like it's helped him, you know, because he's been in a really good place and him meeting his wife, uh, Lori, she's helped him immensely, you know, and he had a lot of stuff going on uh, physically and, and medically and she's helped him and he had surgery, a brain surgery, you know, and he's doing so much better now. And it's nice to see him productive. He's made an album last year, you know, and he's been touring and he went to England even, you know, and played like that. Uh, what's that? Um, what's that? That big punk fest in Blackpool. Uh, 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 Rebellion. Sound of Revolution. Sound of Revolution. Oh, okay. That one. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. One of those. I forget the name. And people were raving about him, which is shocking, you know, because we've all, <coughs> excuse me, we've all seen those crazy shows, right, with him, where you're like, I don't know what's going on with him. <laughs> yeah, um, man, wearing a, a fucking uh, motorcycle helmet, man. Motorcycle helmet or a birdcage or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and like, everybody thought he was just pulling everybody's leg, you know, but he was sick. He was real sick. And, and you know, trying to be creative, you know, like while while being ill, you know, and, yeah. you know, a lot of people didn't realize that that's what was going on. They were like, Oh, he's just high or he's just HR being crazy or whatever. It's like, no, he was, he had mental illness, you know, yeah. and, you know, he was having these headaches that that's what he had the surgery for and all that. So I'm like, I'm proud of him. And, and I'm just happy like to have been able to do that, you know, whether 10 people read it, 10,000, whatever, like to have, been able to to get that done was amazing. Yeah, that's dope. And yeah, and like we talked about earlier, the latest one is the the blood and the sweat. Yep. With Pete and and Lou, the that's story right. of sick of it all. Um, that's is that what's what's is that that's the latest thing to come out? Do you have something coming out after it, or something? Any ideas for what's going to be your next um your next drop? Yeah, I want to work on. So yeah, the um uh, the Pete and Lou book only came out two weeks ago. Yeah, brand new. Go out, everybody. Go out and get it. I'm waiting for the audio book, so make sure they get on it. Audio book now. Um, we had a fight to make sure that Pete and Lou could do it themselves and not have some like quote unquote professional reader do it. Yeah. Uh, so, so they're doing it, which is great. And then uh, right before the whole COVID shit started, um, I started working on something with stigma. Oh shit! I didn't know that, and that's amazing because. I spent a lot of time with Stigma. Of course. And not only that he's everything you think he is, he's 10 times more than that with stuff that he don't talk about. Because he's not that type of dude. He don't brag. He just talks about his life, and it's insane. insane. I don't want it to be, and I talked to him about it, like I don't want it to be like a typical autobiography like everybody else's book. I want it to be, I want it to have the feel of the crazy uncle at the barbecue sitting down with the kids telling them the stories. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. I want to hear stigma's take on everything. Like, so religion, growing up in New York, pasta, it doesn't matter what it is, you know? So guitar, like he already told me an amazing story of like hanging out with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Like, I mean, just, you just don't know what's going to come up. So, you know, we sat like the first time I went up to his apartment and like he made me pasta and we just like sat there and and just talked about stuff. You know, it's yeah. not like, a, OK, so you were born like I don't want I don't want to do that with him. We'll get all that information. 
but like, I don't want it to be like a chronological order of his life. Um, yeah. I want him to talk about Murder, Inc. across the street on Mott Street. I want him to talk about, you know, does God play a role in his life? You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything. That's perfect. And on the back of the book, you need him in a giant rocking chair. Well, that's how he is. That's kind of maybe the idea for the cover. It's almost like like him reading a story to children. Exactly. And let me tell you, that that, that apartment, so much history besides oh. the hardcore scene, besides music from before and after. I turned 20 years old in that apartment. Oh, and, yeah. and I remember him telling me, you're not a teenager no more, kid. He just told me that all night. You're not a teen. And we would save the candles. So for the next guy's birthday party. So we had these little squash candles. We'd buy an Entenmann's cake. But that's, that's the special thing about a, a stigma. You know, it was, it was always out of a place of love, a place of, um, fuck it, we do it here. We don't need nobody, you know. Um, and that's how he's been with his life. And he's kind of, I hate, I don't want to say it in a fucked up way, but like a Forrest Gump. He found himself just being himself in some of the most important craziest scenarios in music and in just in life just right. being who he was and how he is you know what i mean well, that's the thing it's about who he is as a person right because he's a special dude like he really is like he's the most giving warmest person and like you said way earlier in our chat here like you know when when i first would go to cbs and pete and lou tell the same story like it feels like for us, every, every one of us, the first person we met was stigma, right? Facts. Facts. Like, like the welcoming committee. Absolutely. As a kid, it was Roger and Vinny, but Vinny especially. Yeah. You know, they both. Right. What, I, what I love about them and why they are loved and why they deserve every prop they should get was they never looked at as a little kid as a little kid. They looked at them as part of their scene. And right. they went, hey, what's up, guys? What are you guys doing? Stigma. I met them. I remember him coming and some of the guys I was with, they were smoking and drinking and he come, he jumped right into Cypher. It's like, yo, what's up guys? Yo, you coming to the show? And it's like, oh shit, Stigma's chilling with us. You right. know, it was like, not like, oh, these are some little kids, you know, whatever. He was always, nah, fuck that. We all together. Right. And that's something special. Even Roger, I tell this story, I'm walking up and down um, the line in Lemoore selling the Demise demos, my first band demo. And Roger coming up to me, he's like, oh, what you got there? And I said, $5. This before I knew him. And, and then he ended up buying the demo. And my drummer was like, yo, that's Roger. Why didn't you just give it him? And I'm like, fuck that. I was up all night with the two tape recorders recording these demos. Yo, but Roger remembers that. And, and, and Roger bought it, not because I put him on the spot. He was like, you know, interested, supported. And you know, imagine, you know, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if, if, if your hero is fucking um, 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 David Lee Roth and he comes up to you online you know, at his show and he fucking buys your demo, you know, yep. crazy. I mean, but that, that's the beauty of this scene. And especially in New York, like, you know, people who don't live here and didn't grow up here, like they've got all their own like versions of what New York is like, but that's the kind of shit I remember, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is stuff like that, like the lines outside shows and the hanging out before the, the, the going somewhere together after, you know, like uh, I remember in my, my fanzine in my first issue, we reviewed the, uh, the Chromax cassette, right? The, the original. Classic. And we were selling them online at a rich show. And 
It turns out that I sold, like we were selling them for 50 cents, right? We sold them 50 cents online. So somebody bought one and showed the review to Paris. Paris was online, you know, and he comes over to me, he goes, did you write this? I'm like, yeah. He goes, dude, that's amazing. It's nobody's ever reviewed it before. <laughs> Crazy. You know? And so, and it was a great review, you know? And, and so like, you know, he and I started talking and like, so now I know somebody in the Cro-Mags, you know, and, and things like that. And, and that's how you made connections. So like you helped, I remember helping to carry people's gear into CVs just so they put me on the list, you know? Hell yeah. Uh, Hell yeah. And I was like, this is great. I just got in for free. Yeah. No, again, you know, that's what I wanted. To, this is how I wanted to end this. And I'm glad you, you hit it like that because I'm glad we got people like you that came up the same way a lot of the early bands came up, you know, being a part of the scene from helping out to um, going out of your way to, you know, using your own time and money and, and, and um, resources to, to print the zine, to, to, to be a part of it, to give to the scene. And now you're, you went from signing bands to, to, to writing these books and that's very special. And it's a very, and I'm really glad I have people like you, putting, you know, that keep putting hardcore in the map, you know, and putting the underground on the map like you're doing. And I'm glad you're doing, especially the book thing. That's like very special that it's taking our, our, our world to the next level, like with the, like Ian did with the film and you're doing with these books. So keep doing that, Howie. I'm glad, you know, you're you and the sick of it all book is out now. Go get that. Is there the stigma thing is in the works and anything else should we should look out for Howie or where could we find you and all that other good shit? Yeah. I mean, I'm all over social media, so I'm on Facebook. It's all my name. And then, uh, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, the whole thing. I don't use Twitter that much, but you know, I read Twitter. I don't tweet much. <laughs> yeah. No. I, uh, yeah. I'm definitely around and, 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 you know, I love, I love hearing new bands, like people's projects, whatever, like I'm still listening all day, every day, you know? And, um, and that's the key It's like, you know, that whole cliche of don't forget your roots. Right. But it's real. And, and, you know, if, if you remember like why you wanted to do it in the first place, you'll never lose, you know, you know, you'll never fall off the, the rails. Definitely. That's why, you know, I do this podcast because people, would always say, man, they would hear us talking shit backstage about stories. And they were like, man, I wish we could hear these stories. And, and this is kind of like my version of doing a zine, you know, just some shit talking about with friends I know and about shit that I think is interesting and that some of these people would like to know. And, um, favorite episode ever was the Scotty Banks one, man. Oh, that was, you know, they should make that mandatory listening in schools. (laughs) You know, I thank you. And, and, for me, you know, that that was, again, a special one for me being, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and how um, we were viewed as and or people were viewed as in our scene thing. And you heard skinhead, you thought white power, you thought, you know, you know, as good as I do, the 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 depth of the styles of music people heard back then that may not be very liked nowadays, but it was all part of the roots of this world we come from, you know, if it was lyrics you agreed with or not, you knew where it came from and you didn't just, Oh, fuck that because this and that you were like, okay, I mean, I like it or I like it, but I don't like the message or, but you understood the place, the brick it, it made in the building that we all live in. So that's another thing I always liked about you. And, um, 
what what's the 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 sick of it all book? Where could they find it so everybody could go right now and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but like I love obviously the independent stores. So Generations got it. New York Hardcore Comics has got it. Cortex has got it, and uh, the Revelation stores got it. Good, um, everybody go get that Howie. I'm glad you came on finally, and I want to have you back. We're gonna I'm eventually gonna do a set it off reunion with oh. all the guys on this. And, and we're going to have you pop in and talk shit and say that you signed us because the bass player. Yeah, well, mostly. <laughs> but, yo, Howie, one love. I'm glad we got you. Everybody, stay tuned for the next one. We out. <laughs>